What if in the world of education, grades did not exist? This week's guest, Star Saxton, shares how she removed grades from her classroom, focused on critical feedback to her students, and incorporated social, emotional, and equity components to the assessment process. In this episode, we also discuss systems of evidence mastery, changing the way we assess, the stigma that is attached to grades in Star's new book, Assessing with Respect, Everyday Practices that Meet Students' Social and Emotional Needs. Welcome back, everyone, to Aspire, the Leadership Development Podcast, where we will be discussing the visions, inspirations, and experiences from top educational leaders. My name is Joshua Stamper, and you can connect with me on Twitter or on Instagram at Joshua double underscore Stamper. Star, thank you so much for joining me tonight. I'm so excited to be here. It has been on my wish list to have you a part of this podcast, and it is such an honor to speak with you and really diving into a topic that's one that I think a lot of people are mulling over because of where we are in education and definitely with the pandemic, which is grading. And so I can't wait to dive into that topic. But before we do that, do you mind just sharing a little bit about your educational journey? Sure. So I was in the classroom for 16 years, and I would say that during that time, I had probably a normal trajectory started out really traditional in the way that I myself was taught. And since I loved school so much, I thought it would be so easy to just do what my teachers did. I learned very quickly that that was not terribly successful, at least not for the students I was working with in um I worked in the inner city in New York when I first started teaching, and I learned a lot in those early years about myself, about the kids I was working with, and just about the notions of what I thought teaching was going to be and what it actually was. Mm -hmm. I moved from New York City to a Long Island school for two years, like in a super affluent district, and I would just say the grass isn't greener. Um, even though the grass is like literally greener, um, it was not. I did not enjoy working in that environment at all. I really felt like I was called to work in New York City. I loved the diversity of the students I worked with and just the authenticity of the folks. And that isn't to say that the kids on Long Island weren't authentic or that I didn't make good relationships with those kids. I think that you have to know where you fit. And after being in both settings, I knew I wanted to be back in the city. So I went back to the city, to the school I spent most of my time in for nine years, where I started tinkering with all the stuff that most people would say that they know me for now, I guess, you know, where when you establish yourself as a highly effective teacher, they start leaving you alone a little bit. The tenure's in place. You, I don't know. I'm one of these people who gets bored really easily. So it's sort of like... I could keep doing the same thing I've always done because it's easy. And I did have a young child at home and I was going through a divorce and like, it's easy sometimes to just go with what you know. But for me, I saw a better way and I just started taking a lot of risks. And since I was already doing some really awesome student-centered work in my journalism classes, because if you ever ran a newspaper, you know, if you were ever a faculty advisor for a journalism program, if you're doing it right, the kids are running the show. And it's just a matter of giving them the tools they need to be successful and then making sure they don't do anything libelous that could get us in trouble. So, you know, I saw a lot of what was working and I was just like, you know what, why can't I do this in my English classes too? Mm -hmm. Why not? 
And then it was like my son at the time, and I've shared this a lot, you know, in, in his elementary school, they had a standards-based grading report card. And I like got all this amazing information. The behaviors were, you know, separated from what was going on in his academics. And I was sitting there doing report cards for my AP Lit class and very frustrated that I only got one grade with three pre-slugged comments, like 14, 32, and, you know, whatever those were, you know, participates well in class, meeting standards, missing homeworks or whatever the case may be. Mm -hmm. And I just started getting really frustrated with all of it and just decided that there had to be a way. And sure enough, I certainly found a, a couple of couple of doorways that kind of let me explore the things I wanted to be doing and the amount of success my students had once I started shifting away from that traditional space really was encouraging and I just kept going with it. So I want to talk about the tinkering, right? You started to find success in that journalism class and Mm -hmm. I'm guessing that you found the confidence to start making some changes and taking those risks. What were those things that you started to tinker with that was working in that journalism class that you then took over to your English class? So I think it started with just how much control the kids had Mm. over what they were doing and how they were doing it. Because it it was essentially like a a writing maker's space. You know, there were different sections. So kids were all doing something different all the time. There wasn't one particular lesson plan I had to adhere to. There was a a menu that we always had on the board. And if they didn't feel like writing or going it, because I had press passes, they could leave class to go to interviews. I had some photographers who were, you know, going out to events to get pictures. We were live tweeting when events were happening. And really, depending on what role you played for the newspaper, you had complete flexibility over how you spent your time as long as you met your deadlines. So if you came to class one day and you really weren't feeling it and you felt like doing research or reading or whatever, there's nothing you could have done that would have been wrong. The expectation was that they set goals for themselves for the week. They maintained and tracked the progress of those goals. At the end of the week, they reflected on how well they met the individual goals that they set. I had a manager in the classroom, a student manager who actually walked around and did the status of the class, checking in with all the students because she had all the deadlines that they had set for themselves and seeing how far along they were. And then she and I would confer and, you know, if somebody needed gentle prodding because not enough was getting done, I would either sit with the editors and figure out what was going to run its place or once we ended up bringing it to a WordPress site instead of a print paper, I ended up having a whole tech team too, kids who are far more adept at understanding code and running a website. And I let them do their thing. And I was just like, you're going to teach me because I don't know how to do any of that stuff, (laughs) but we're going to do it and it's going to be awesome. And, you know, then we also added a fact checker um, for another student. Cause I mean, now that we were online, if kids were going to cite things, they needed to be linked out. And before we could post them live, we needed to make sure that the links worked and that they were reputable and that nobody was plagiarizing. So, I mean, it really ended up becoming this this amazing sort of multimedia website. And the kids really loved coming to class. 
it was a small school. We were a six to 12 school. So I had taught a lot of these students in maybe the foundations in journalism class. Maybe they were in an English class with me at another time. And then if they had chosen newspaper as the publication they wanted to be a part of, they were with me for 11th and 12th grade. So I had really good relationships. They had my home number. They had my cell phone. When we were still using print, when we were going to press, we all had to be in touch with each other so that by the time the printer got it, if there were any errors, I needed to be able to reach them. So mm-hmm. it was just, you know, they were treated like adults and always rose to the occasion and any responsibility I gave them, it was always impressive. And right. a lot of those kids were in my English class too. So it was sort of like, why couldn't this transfer? And I had already given up on testing traditionally in my English class. And I had switched up even in my AP class to a completely project-based curriculum um, and then individual written assignments that sort of supported what they were learning in the group work when they were doing the projects. And even the way that we explored literature ended up changing because it wasn't me telling them what the authors meant by specific symbols. It was them developing questions about what they were interested in and then leading class discussions based on their own interests and thoughts mm-hmm. about the literature that we were reading, which when you're a literature teacher and you're teaching the same books over and over, it certainly does add a whole other level of interesting because they take it in directions that I would have never thought of given the fact that our age difference started growing and growing and growing after yeah. a while. So that's a lot of change. Mm. And so, you know, you're giving autonomy to your students, you're giving them roles, there's menus. It sounds like a whole reform as far as the classroom setting. And then you start to take out the tests, you start Mm -hmm. to provide different assessments. So what did that look like for you in regards to providing feedback, but then also grades? Like what did that look like as far as taking a, a new model and trying to set a number attached to that? Well, I mean, what you just asked, Joshua, is just, it's just that. How could you, yeah. right? And I figured that out pretty quickly that no grade could have really expressed the true nature of the learning that was transpiring in the space that we were in. So I had to figure out a different way. So first it was delaying the grade, you know, like during all formative work revisions, there was just feedback. And we started doing feedback in a lot of different ways. I started doing expert groups, which were developed, which I wrote about in peer feedback in the classroom, which is all about developing expertise in specific areas of writing that come up over and over and over again. So kids know if I need to work on organization, here's five kids in the class who have been trained to give feedback in organization. And so before it came to me in the classroom, they were seeking each other out and there were workshop days in class where the teams would work together and everyone would share their essays and it would go through a workshop where it was in group one that was just looking at introductory paragraphs and they had a checklist of things they were looking for, giving feedback on everything together. And then, you know, from each of the other groups, whether it was cohesion, organization, evidence and analysis or concluding paragraphs as well. And they would have to maintain all of the learning that was happening in those spaces. And then reflection was another huge thing that sort of took the sting out of the grading part because 
they had been setting goals for themselves based on the feedback that had been given. And instead of me just giving them stock sort of feedback that you give everybody when you're looking at a rubric and you're kind of checking your boxes or making comments about areas that still need work, it really gave me an opportunity to differentiate the feedback I was giving so that it was really instructive for the individual child I was working with. It also gave me an insight as to what they felt they needed to be working on and where they felt they were growing. And I could validate that or provide more strategies for enhancing whatever needed enhancement. And I, it just kind of kept going from there. And then there were no grades and we were doing these assessment conferences using portfolios. And since I still had to put a grade on the report card, the students were completely involved in that process where a week before grades were due, I started setting up conferences. They were going through their portfolios, filling out a Google form, really being meticulous about being able to articulate the learning that had occurred and finding evidence from their work to support it. And then conferring with me, having a conversation. I would ask clarifying questions to the stuff that kind of got glossed over in the pre-survey that came my way. And we would decide what would go on the report card together. And usually I would say 98% of the time, whatever the the students said they wanted on the report card, that's what I put on the report card. And it worked. It worked really well. This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. You can find out more at teachbetter.com slash podcast. Now let's get back to the episode. I need to go back. You've now gone to a brand new model where essentially you weren't providing a grade. It was just feedback. Mm-hmm. aligned with the standards and then they had to show evidence at the end and then mm-hmm. you had a conference and they, they got to provide the number that was representative of their work how was that perceived by your colleagues and were you supported by your administration um my colleagues thought i was crazy <laughs> and pretty much tried to keep their distance i think everyone respected me in the building because I was involved in everything. Like I was on committees galore. I had been there a really long time. I had built the newspaper from nothing and sort of just got that program together. And I was involved in a lot of stuff. So my colleagues knew that I had good relationships with kids. They knew that I was very invested in the work, but none of them wanted to be doing what I was doing. And they, I think were probably fearful that at some point my administration was going to be like, we're going to do this. And it was going to be my fault, at least. <laughs> That's kind of how it felt sometimes. Sure. Yeah. But there were folks who were curious. My door was always open. I think I was with a lot of really traditional folks who really didn't believe kids would learn without grades. And they thought that that carrot and stick sort of extrinsic motivation needed to be there. Right. Although, you know, nobody would have said that it wasn't working in my space. Like kids might not have been getting grades, but they were coming early and staying late. They were coming up during their lunch periods to do the work. I think they saw value in the work that they were doing. And I had definitely developed a reputation as a senior teacher that if you wanted to be ready for college, that Saxton's class was the one you had to go through to get there. And I think that that helped a lot because my kids would come back after their freshman, sophomore years around Thanksgiving and just talk about how easy their first two years were and that my class was harder than 
classes that they had to take in college. And even though it's, you know, your senior year and you don't want to do anything, it's worth it to put in the extra effort and go through it. I was always extraordinarily impressed with the amount of commitment that my students showed. And I think that that mutual respect was just something that was really at the heart of everything we were doing. I trusted them. They trusted me and they knew I had their backs. Like I wouldn't have asked them to do anything that I thought would have been harmful or wouldn't have been helpful in any way. And I asked for their feedback regularly so much so that towards the end of that time at that particular school, they were writing curriculum with me. They were redesigning units, redesigning assessments, and a complete part of the process of what and how they were going to be assessed based on whatever standards I needed to be covering. Right. The reason I asked that question is because I've had some extremely heated discussions um, prior to being an administrator as a teacher with other colleagues about grades and just that role. I remember us doing a, a book study, Fairs Not Always Equal was the book. Mm-hmm. And I have never seen people get so irate in such a short period of time. But of course, the topic was grades. And I was just imagining, you know, what that looked like to your other colleagues, because obviously, you got results, and maybe someone replicating the system that you had produced yourself. I tried, I, I tried, like my administrators, trusted what I was doing. You had asked about my administrators too. I don't think that my direct supervisor really understood what I was doing, Mm -hmm. but he trusted me and there were no complaints ever. And I know I had suggested to my principal one year that if we were going to try to move in this direction, we should have like a five-year plan. There should be a committee. It shouldn't just be me. There should be folks from other subject areas, different grade levels, if we were going to be deciding on what exemplars look like at every level, we needed as much volunteer participation as possible. And there needed to be a pilot group of people, preferably on a grade level or in one content area vertically that we could track what it was looking like in. And I even wrote up a whole implementation plan and was very eager to help build a team to get it done, but it just never happened that way. And it really turned into a mess on the bigger plan. And like you were saying, as an administrator, when I was working as a curriculum leader in the district I went to later, I think my ideas scared a lot of the teachers that were on my team. And I just kept saying to them, no one expects you to be me. Right. You know, I want you to be the best version of you. And that's what I'm here to support, making sure that the kids are getting what they need. And it's important for them to see different folks who approach the content in different ways. No one's expecting you to do it my way. Mm -hmm. I'm just asking you keep an open mind and be flexible to try new things if the opportunity arises, you know. So I was not beloved um, as a leader (laughs) right away by my my team. Yeah, (laughs) you're challenging something that's a tradition, something that's different than their own experience. And so that, that is always difficult for any leader. And so I want to know what is STARS ideal grading system? No grades. No grades. Like no <laughs> grades. I, you know, ideally there's a mastery progression. Mm-hmm. We've all decided like there are exemplars of what mastery looks like, what it sounds like, what it feels like across content areas learning is more interdisciplinary. So there's not as clear cut lines as far as 
you know, when we think about what mastery looks like, mastery is being able to take skills and content and be able to apply it without, you know, consistently without somebody prompting you to do that. So having kids have multiple opportunities to engage with new learning, to apply the skills that they're working on, ongoing feedback, student to student, teacher to student, student to teacher, always kind of ongoing, heavy reflection and goal setting kind of embedded in the process with self-assessment and portfolio assessment at the end of the year, where we look at the body of work together and determine whether or not it's met that mastery criteria that we determined as a, you know, as a grade level team was what we were seeking out for moving up into the next space. That's ideal, I yeah, think. That's ideal. I love the piece too, because you're talking about the partnership that you're having with your students and those meetings and having that self-reflection piece. But then there's also the student advocacy component there that they're taking ownership of what they're doing. What did you see as far as the growth of your students within that process? So when a teacher has really good clarity about what they want students to be learning. And that clarity is communicated in a way that students understand exactly what they're supposed to be learning, why they're learning it. And they're given free range to sort of question what they're learning, why they're learning it, and really be engaged in that conversation where you start to embed the academic language about what they're learning and why they're learning it. And so that they could identify in their own work what they're working on. And they could use that academic language to be able to do it. That process makes it that much more possible for them to say, yes, I understand how to take quotes and use them as support in my essays, but I'm still struggling to transition into deeper analysis and and use that language to ask a very specific question because in New York City public school, schools, I don't know how it is in Texas, but the there are 34 kids in a class. That's how it gets capped. And if you have five classes, you have a lot of kids you're working with. Yep. And if you're teaching rigorous classes, there's a lot of work coming in all the time. So finding a way to get them to ask the question they really want answered so that they're not coming up to you and saying, is this good or do you like this? Like my students knew that as soon as they came up to me with something like that, I was going to turn them around. I don't have time right now to read eight typed pages and tell you if it's good, because I don't even know what you're asking me right now is what good, right? You know, what are you looking for help on? Are you just looking for validation? You could get that like, because a part of this process too, is getting them to feel confident as writers and as learners and as readers and, getting them to not need my validation to say something is good. I want them to feel like it's good and that they could defend the choices that they make, which is why even when we would do writing conferences, I can make suggestions to them as an author, as a reader to an author, but at the end of the day, it's their piece of work and ultimately their decision whether or not they want to take my advice when I give it to them. And if they are making choices that I don't understand because it's too early in the process and they don't feel like they want to make those changes, as long as they could defend why they didn't make those changes, I'm good. Mm-hmm. Like I was always very good. Like, like, again, not trying to make them sound like me or develop their writing voice in a way that 
emulated what worked for me naturally. I wanted them to develop their own writing voice, their own style. I wanted to break them of formulaic writing that they had been doing for a very long time. Mm -hmm. And I wanted them to feel good about the choices they were making. So sometimes that meant when they didn't feel confident, me being their cheerleader and saying, this is like, pull out that first draft. Let's have a look for a second about how far you've come. And I want you to identify for me the things that you've changed in this that has made it more successful as a piece to communicate this argument that you're making or, you know, how you were able to demonstrate your understanding of absurdist theater through this one act play that you developed or whatever piece we were doing at that time. And they never failed to impress me. Mm -hmm. Never. It was, it was a privilege to work with them, really. So how do we translate that same thing as a leader to our teachers? Well, I tried. I don't know if this happened to you. I, I loved being a teacher. I, I never thought I'd leave the classroom. So when I found myself in a leadership role, I really looked forward to my monthly department meetings mm -hmm. because it was like my one lesson to plan a month. I was one of these leaders. I was going to be the leader I always wanted. So I would do walkthroughs without gotchas. It was just like, I want to see the great, I want to be around your kids. I want to be in your class. I offered to co-teach. I offered to model. I offered to plan for them. And whenever I would model a strategy in one of those meetings, you know, at the end of every meeting, I had a Google survey and I was like, you know, what are your takeaways from this? What would you still need work on? What you know, what is challenging your thoughts here? Because that was the other thing too. I was the humanities director. It was the first year that English, social studies, world language, business, library, and reading were all one department. It's a lot. Yeah, it was. I mean, for a first time leader who was mostly an English teacher with a little social studies thrown in there, I had a lot of learning to do myself. Yeah. And very humbly asked the folks who were in my department who had been there a lot longer than I had been to grace me with any kind of information they could have provided for me because I really had this idea in my head about what I wanted to be doing. But, you know, whether or not that translated, you know, I think to be a good leader, you just have to be a really awesome listener. You have to try to make really great relationships. And when you make promises, you have to make good on those promises. And you have to be mindful of what you're asking folks to do and making sure that whatever you're asking them to do actually has a purpose. They have enough on their plate. We shouldn't be giving them more just to give them more. Mm -hmm. So same thing with like my kids, like asking them to jump through hoops for no good reason. Like, right. So if I have a teacher who I know is doing great things, not just because they gave me the dog, the dog and pony show right. when it was time for me to come to observe them, but I'm walking by their classroom and I find myself lingering by the door often because there's always something exciting happening in that space. You know, I want, I want to give them shout outs. So I started doing newsletters weekly that offered strategies based on the things that I was seeing. They had shout outs and reminders. And I had started to ask folks how they wanted to be celebrated because I learned very quickly some people did not like being celebrated publicly. Yep. made that mistake um, very fast and got the email literally like five minutes after my email went out and, you know, took that small 
verbal abuse that came after that and said, okay, noted, <laughs> had a big post-it right over the computer. Like this person doesn't want to be celebrated in the newsletter. So go celebrate her personally right. instead. You know, I, I think that that's the other thing too, just humility, mm-hmm. admitting you don't know everything. And I think as a teacher, especially when you're working with kids who are almost your age, you know, when I started teaching, I was much younger than I am now, but kids that are basically adults, you have to listen, you have to trust them, you have to give them opportunities. And I think teachers need to know that you advocate for them. Like I would advocate for my folks at Central all the time. And when we had to do data conferences, what I learned very quickly is my teachers didn't know what that meant. So it was like, how can you expect them to do something that no one ever taught them to do? So I'm going to put the brakes on what you're asking for right now so that I could dial it back a little bit and show them what they're already doing that meets the criteria of what you're asking for. And then we're going to talk about how to use that information to inform instruction instead of just plowing through curriculum all the time. The irony, I think I was at that district for two years in that leadership role. And when I left, all of a sudden, all the folks who gave me the hardest time started reaching out to tell me how much they miss me when the new folk came in. (laughs) So I was like, oh, I guess it wasn't as bad as you thought. (laughs) That's typically how it is, though. That's with students. I mean, some of your most challenging students, you know, they come back a couple years later and thank you for, you know, all the things that you did and how much they miss you as a teacher. And you're just like, I would have never guessed that in the moment. Appreciate that feedback later on. Oh my God. (laughs) I mean, you know what? The irony too in that is I was that teacher who got along super well with the kids that no one else got along with. Mm -hmm. Because when they came to my room, I didn't care about the war stories that I heard from other folks. For me, it was, it's day one. Even if you've been in my, you were in my class in ninth grade and now you're in my class in 12th grade new day friends. Let's, you know, you make a choice. And um, I was not at that point in my career, I would not have ever made an assumption that a kid was trying to be bad. There was always a reason. And I always wanted to understand the reason. So behavior is language. All right. I don't want to get off the top too far because I know you have a book that is correlating with what we've been talking about, which is Mm -hmm. assessing with respect. So will you just give a quick synopsis of that new book? Sure. So what's awesome about the new book is that I think it is the best evolution of the thinking I've had about assessment. And it looks at the intersection between social emotional learning Hmm. and assessment and why we have to make the shifts that I talk about if we want to really honor the dignity of every child that's in our space. And because I wrote the book during the pandemic, There were other issues that I had no intention of bringing into the book that ended up being central equity, um, implicit bias, and a variety of other things that as a white educator, I really can't ignore. Mm -hmm. And I felt like I had an obligation as a person who reaches a lot of people to use that platform to infuse the same message that we just need to have out there right now that children learn differently, their cultures need to be honored, and we need to treat every child that walks through our room like they matter, because there won't be any learning if they don't feel that. And just understanding the implications of what grades do to kids' self-esteem. I have 
some really awesome, uh, I have a friend who's a psychologist who wrote a piece for it, like a short piece about the impact of grades on students learning identities and how they see themselves. There's a lot of testimonials from kids in there about the necessity of advocacy. And it uses Castle's framework to kind of break down, like to see Castle's framework through an assessment lens. So you have each one of those pieces and how it pertains to different assessments that we do in school all the time, starting with building relationships and then looking at self-awareness and then decision-making straight through to that personalization piece at the end, looking at equity. And I think that there's a lot to think about in there. And it's a very different book. Like it takes hacking assessment. It takes peer feedback in the classroom. It takes the reflection books and it kind of puts everything together Mm -hmm. and then also adds in the LGBTQ piece and the black and brown piece and all those things that we need to be talking about. And I am no equity expert and I make no claims to that, but I do pull in a lot of other experts and give folks a lot of other reading to do if something stands out that they find a gap where they need to go a little bit deeper, then there's a reference to that for them to go to that person who knows a lot more than I do. I love that you took those two topics and blended it, you know, as far as the social emotional learning piece and the assessment, because they are interconnected and oftentimes that's not the way (laughs) that the world of assessment works. Similar to what you're talking about before about separating the two, right? The behavior, you know, you can give feedback on behavior and you, that's, that's separate. But so often that is converged onto this, this numeric system that then is a representation of that child. And, and if you don't think that a grade affects a child's self-worth, you're mistaken. I mean, personally, myself, I was a terrible student and, and I always thought I was a terrible student because of the grades that I received. And it wasn't until far later in my life that I realized that that wasn't my identity, And I love the fact that you've brought those two worlds together. I mean, to that point too, though, it goes both ways for the folks who really struggled for whatever reason, whether it's because, you know, just playing school wasn't their thing. I was an A student. I was super good at following directions and my whole identity centered around my ability to people please and get really good grades. Mm -hmm. Ask me what I learned during that time because it wasn't very much. And the amount of anxiety and stress I had all the time trying to be perfect. And I see it with my son now too. Like I had an ulcer when I was 16, you know, like, like I was that anxious Mm -hmm. because I didn't want anybody to not be proud of me. And I I see what it does to my son too, because he also wants to succeed. And I'm the one always saying to him, bud, did you try your hardest? You know, what did you learn through that experience? I have a deep empathy for children whose identities, regardless of which end of the spectrum they end up on, Mm -hmm. are tied up in in all of that other stuff that ends up getting pulled in. And teachers have so much power like we shouldn't have that much power mm-hmm. <laughs> to, you know, to be able to make a kid feel yeah. good or bad. Like mm-hmm. we should just be there to support 
and encourage and help them find their their voice and their way in a way that makes sense to them without labels and judgment. And, yeah. and that's really what the whole thing is about. Beautifully said, Star. So yes. let's talk about another project that came from the pandemic. I know you, you have been working on a curriculum supplement. So I want to learn more about this. So it's not just me. It's just the it's the folks at the Core Collaborative. Awesome. Um, Dr. Paul Bloomberg, who is the CEO of the company, came up with this idea because he was talking to a lot of teachers. And with the work that we do now, like I work with teacher teams doing his impact team work, like folks were stressed mm-hmm. because a lot of districts were clearly not really ready for the shifts that the pandemic kind of forced them to make. And as they were trying to navigate these hybrid environments and what did that look like, we were trying to find a solution that was gonna support them, but would also be able to go into a world that was as close to normal as we could get after in some kind of RTI sort of way where it was really intentional practice built in with what was going on. And we made the Empowered Learner Toolkit we started in grades three to five, and it comes with a field guide and there's like a menu and there are 10 to 20 tasks on a menu. And there are surface learning tasks, which are concept based that are prerequisite. And then you get into the deeper learning tasks that sort of build on what was going on and kids could navigate through that depending on how teachers want to use it. It could either be by choice or it could be like these three meet a particular target to help work toward a goal. So you could choose one of the three and demonstrate your understanding. There are surveys for reflection that kind of are brought in as well. And then, you know, kids are asked to demonstrate their learning and, you know, it embeds Pear Deck or Nearpod depending on what your school is using and it really focuses on the formative process and it keeps the tasks super specific to individual skills we want them to be learning focused around literary standards. Mm -hmm. And we're just finishing up the middle school one now as well. And I've had the honor of working with a couple of teacher teams as they've built their menus and um, watching them even start in at the high school level, give ownership to kids to develop their own tasks on the menu, to get feedback from kids about which learning they enjoy the most. We've seen engagement really improve because the kids have complete ownership over what and how and at what pace they're doing the learning. And then once they complete a task, they essentially create a portfolio of learning by linking their work to the menu so that they could go back later to demonstrate progress toward the standard on the menu. So it's been a really cool project to work on. And um, Isaac Wells is sort of my partner in crime. He's my elementary counterpart Mm -hmm. in literacy. And he's, it's been just amazing working with him and Gina Burt, who's also, she's an instructional coach out West, who's been helping us develop the middle school one. And it's really, I'm, I'm really proud of the work that we've, we've come together to develop because I think it really helped. It's helping teachers. And that's really all we want to do. Just oh, yeah. make folks have an easier go of it. So for those who are wanting to learn more about the curriculum supplement or just all the amazing things that you're doing, how can they connect with you on social media? So 
Twitter is always the best for me. So at Miss Saxstein, I do have a website that's also MissSaxstein.com. Basically everything related to me is branded Miss Saxstein. So if you want my Gmail, it's Miss Saxstein at Gmail. You want to find me on Twitter, it's at Miss Saxstein on LinkedIn. I think it's my whole name, but for most everything else, it's Miss Saxstein. And, you know, the new book is on Amazon and it's from ASCD. So you could get it there too. If you're a member, you could probably get a discount. Mm-hmm. Highly recommend discounts. <laughs> Always Wherever a good you thing could for get educators, them. right? Absolutely. <laughs> I'll make sure that all of the links are in the show notes um, for your books and your website and all of your social media handles. So for anyone that wants to connect with Star, which I highly recommend, make sure that you go in there and click and connect with her as soon as possible. And Star, you are a wealth of information, and I just love listening to you speak on this really important topic of assessment and grading. I just thank you so much for being on the Aspire podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I I love talking assessment. So we can always talk assessment. We could geek out on as small or as big as you want to go. I'll have to have you back, and we can dive into it some more, because I can talk to you even longer. But you've been so gracious with your time, and I, I just appreciate you. Thank you so much. 